0: Hello, hello, hello. This, this is MCO. Hello. This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This, this, is, this another is another MCO, MCO, and MCO and transmission. transmission. Uh, uh, welcome everybody to our lovely little sutra study Sunday class uh, tonight. A uh, New sutra for me. New sutra maybe for all of us. We are going to do the Metta Sutta. Uh, We're going to do a version of it called the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Um, But we're going to talk all night about Metta, otherwise translated as loving-kindness or friendship. Um, There's a a bunch of different translations of this sutra. I want to talk quickly about where it comes from uh, and then read it and then break it down. just a quick curious show of hands. Who's heard of this sutra before? A gnome has know ever. So only two people have even heard of it. How about the meta, the idea of loving kindness, the Buddhist idea? Oh, cool. Okay, so that's familiar. So tonight we're going to find out where it comes from and dive deeper into what loving kindness or metta might mean. All right. Uh, so quickly, this is like my obligatory... Uh, source, like uh, discussion of sources here. I've written up for you for the first time, these are the five collections of Buddhist sutras or suttas as they're called in Pali, the language of Pali. There's these big collections. These collections are called Nikayas. And there's a Diga Nikaya, Majima Nikaya, Samyutta Nikaya, Anguttara Nikaya, and the Kudaka Nikaya. Uh, the long discourses, the middle-length discourses, the connected discourses, actually because they're thematically connected, so they all have the same topic. Uh, the Anguttara Mikaya is interesting. These are all sutras that deal with like, the four noble truths, the five skandhas, the six paramitas, the seven factors of enlightenment, and actually, what the word Anguttara means is add one or plus one. The idea being that the, the the teachings are given, that first all the teachings that are given in twos, and then all the teachings in threes, then all the teachings in fours, fives. so you add one. And then finally, the fifth collection, way at the end, the, the Kudaka Nikaya, which is the minor suttas. It's kind of like, you know, what, what happens with... A collection of anything at the end you have like the miscellaneous category. So our Metta Sutra that we're gonna read tonight actually comes from this minor Nikaya, the Kudaka Nikaya, and in that Nikaya, in that collection of sutras there's actually two versions of this sutra. They're more or less the same. One is in the Kudaka Nikaya Sutra number nine is the Kariñya Meta-sutta. But also in the Kudaka Nikaya, there is a collection of suttas. So now a collection within a collection. But within this collection, there's a collection called the Sutta Nipata. Bunch of little suttas together. And the first one in that collection, the eighth part of that first one, is a version of the sutra. So it appears twice. You should know that in this numerical or umgat, umgaret, sorry, anguttara nikaya, there is a metta nisamsa sutta. But this is just a sutra that tells you the. It's a very short sutta, very very short, just a paragraph, and it just tells you the eleven benefits of of metta, of loving kindness. So I just wrote those up for you real quick, so we can kind of discuss those later once we have a. a kind of a hold of what metta is. All right, so we're talking about two versions of this sutta, one version of this sutta. And by the way, within the Pali canon, this sort of Theravadan body of texts, this is it when it comes to metta, these three sutras, two of which are the exact same. So there's not a lot on this kind of of basic idea, and I want to discuss that a little bit. Um quickly to the word Karaniya. It means what should be done. What should be done regarding metta is sort of how one would read it. The very first word of this sutra is Karaniya, which is actually why it has that name. A lot of not a lot of suttas, but many suttas and sutras are called what they're called because it's the first. Word or sentence or a few words of it. Um, what you should know is is that when I read this sutta, um, and again I bought in a bunch of different translations, but I just chose one that I kind of liked the best. Um, this is an odd. Sutra, and I'm going to talk about why it might be odd. But it's odd because it doesn't say, "Thus have I heard." Once the Buddha was staying in such and such a place with this many monks and nuns, and this was the situation that brought about this sutra. That's how all sutras start. This one doesn't start that way. So that's a little in- that's interesting, right there. Um, you should know that in addition to the collections of sutras, in addition to the Vinaya, in addition to all those things, there's a bunch of commentary in Pali that go with all of this. And by all of this, I mean this whole world of Buddhism, this whole world of Southeast Asian Pali-based Buddhism. There's a whole bunch of commentaries that you could read to find out more about these sutras, to find out more about Buddhist ideas, all that. And they're written by Monks, scholar monks from the past. And so those are helpful for us to understand what sutras meant at the time. So commentaries, although sometimes they're really boring, if you're a scholar or you're really interested in these ideas, commentaries can be some of the most revealing information about what, what things meant to people. Okay. Um, within that world of commentary, there is a commentary on the sutra and why the Buddha t- said it, what was going on. And it's in that commentary that we hear that the Buddha was staying in Srivasti with 500 monks and that he had just given all the monks a, a subject of meditation to go off to the forest with. Now, I was reading this commentary and a few other commentaries, and what I found very interesting about just that, just that little intro, was that it was really interesting insight into how Buddhism functioned in terms of these ideas, these dharmas that I'm always talking about, these these ideas or concepts or truths, is what dharma means, truths. And that got me to looking around and I found all these other instances of this idea that the, the monks would get up, they'd go begging all day for food, gather together and eat before noon And then the Buddha would give a teaching and give everybody an idea to go away with to think about. This is Vipassana or or something akin to Vipassana where the Buddha's giving you an idea or a Dharma, a truth to go off and think about. And so the Buddha had just given the monks a Dharma, a little idea to go off and think about. And they went into the forest and there were these Yakshas, Yakshas are traditionally tree spirits, although they can be just nature spirits. So they're usually associated with just trees, but you could get, like, some other types of yakshas. And the monks were being disturbed by these yakshas that kept coming down from the trees and bothering them. So all the monks, they couldn't concentrate on their dharmas, on their their ideas, so they went back to the Buddha, complained about the yakshas, and then the Buddha gave them the metta-sutta to deal with this situation. So you should know that in terms of the commentary, that's where this sutra came from. So just on that, let me say, what well, I'm going to say what I, a, a hunch I have. So we never hear actually the Buddha give this sutra per se. What we hear is the story about the Buddha because the monks were disturbed by these yakshas, he gave them all the metta-sutta. And then you read this, and it doesn't have the thus have I heard beginning. And my, a suspicion I have is that this sutta reminds me a lot of the uh, Single Excellent Night Sutra, which I suggested that the Single Excellent, Excellent Night sort of seems like it's a pre-Buddhist sutra a pre-Buddhist poem, Gatha, a pre-Buddhist idea that the Buddha was like, we got to hang on to this single excellent night idea. This is a good one. This seems to have been a pre-existent little idea that the Buddha kind of had in his back pocket from the early days. And when the monks couldn't meditate, he kind of said, well, try this one out. Not that he himself gave the metta sutta, but he like literally gave it to him. It kind of reads like that and I have a big, um, uh, a big chunk of support in my back pocket <laughs> about that because in a couple of uh, sutras in the Dika Nikaya, the first collection, the major sayings of the Buddha, he describes this practice that we're going to talk about tonight, this four-step process of metta or loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and then equanimity. These are called the Brahma Viharas, these kind of meditative states that go from meditating on or radiating out love and kindness to radiating out compassion, radiating out empathetic joy, and then ultimately kind of radiating out tranquility or equanimity. The Buddha is very clear that that practice of the four Brahma Viharas, the abodes of Brahma, he's very clear that this was a pre-existing practice. He talks about that practice and he actually puts that practice down. He actually kind of says, yeah, that, that'll, that's good for meeting Brahma. If you, want, if you have a, a deep desire to meet God, meet Brahma, you could do this meditation and go to the Brahma heavens. He contrasts that practice with his practice. This happens in a sutra and so it does seem that this meditation on brahma and the abodes of brahma in particular metta pre-buddhist idea and that would lend a little bit of possibility to the, this metta sutra being a pre-buddhist sutra all right now you know i talk, i have talked in the past about originitis people who have this illness where they need to have the the first most original thing and then if it comes after that, it's no good. This is an illness, all right. <laughs> to, want, or to only accept the original, right? But if you have originitis, you should be excited. This might be a, more original <laughs> and therefore more true, right? I think that's the assumption of originitis, that these things are more true somehow. Um, so the reason why I bring up this idea, though, is that, you know, is it Buddhist, is it not Buddhist, Is it pre-Buddhist? Is it? You know, who cares? Who at the end of the day, who cares? We're about to read it. Think about these ideas, right? Maybe, maybe I wrote this last night, right? If it's if it if it vibes with you, that should be the important part, not how old it is or whether the Buddha said it or some earlier Buddha or something like that, right? Questions before we actually get into it? No.
1: So, if your theory is correct, and he, at one point earlier, or in one of the other sutras he talks about how not, there are these ways to meet, the, to meet Bra, but I want to teach you the dhyanas, but, but then he does pull it out to help monks.
0: But again, he pulls it out because they were having a hard time with these yakshas. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: So, he does see the utility of it.
0: Absolutely, but utility might be exactly the right word uh-huh. in that way. So So it's not
1: like an end-all, be-all. It's it's just a thing to pull out sometimes.
0: Maybe. Or not. But again, I I just wanted you to know uh, where it comes from. The basic idea of that, this idea of metta is a pre-Buddhist idea that the Buddha was really kind of into, certainly into in terms of combating yakshas. Um, And I also wanted to preface all that so that you understood why it reads so uh, simply, with no thus have I heard story beginning, right? Everybody good? Right. Again, it's very short, so we'll just do it, and then we'll go through it. Um, here it is, the uh, Karaniya Metasutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path to peace. Let them be able and upright, very upright, and gentle in speech humble and not conceited contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways peaceful and calm wise and skillful not proud or demanding in nature let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and those living far away, those born and those yet to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state." Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Here. That's it. Hmm? I said pithy. 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 Just so. Um, so, of course, again, uh, I mean, a lot of ideas. Pithy, to be sure. Anybody? Ideas just to get us going? Any responses to it? I
1: like the idea things seen and unseen. Mm-hmm. I like that you refer that there's a reference made to things seen and things unseen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In particular, this is sort of a reference to these yakshas because these yakshas are kind of spirits and the idea of being seen and unseen is referring to animals and dogs and people and people things the seen, and also that which i don't see but that i either know is there or just in case it's there or <laughs> however it is so to to all being seen and unseen I mean, one thing that jumped out at me right away when I was reading this, of course, is the incredible lack of Buddhist-specific ideas, concepts. It kind of lends a little even more support to this idea that this is a pre-Buddhist text or a pre-Buddhist gotha poem. Um, there's very few ideas in here, actually, that, that really jump out as uniquely Buddhist. It's kind of, of general in that sense, um, Let's talk a little bit, so you might have noticed also, this sutra only deals with this idea of metta, period. It actually doesn't even talk about the viharas this idea of like a, um, levels to this, it doesn't talk about that. Um, you know, it talks about very little, actually. It just kind of talks about taking, uh, a lot of people focus on the um the only metaphor in there which is that like a mother to her only child that's how one extends to all beings powerful statement very powerful idea right if one could really imagine extending that level of of <laughs> you know of love empathy compassion that a mother has for their only child if one could really imagine a being extending that same love to all beings? Wow. Wow, right? That's what's being asked in the sutra and also, in a way, in the Buddhist practice, that same level of um, metta. Let's talk for a moment about this word metta. It's traditionally translated as loving-kindness. It's kind of an interesting word etymologically, it, and not, not that it has etymological relationship to the word friendship at all, but in Sanskrit and Pali, the word metta has a lot more relationship with the Sanskrit Pali word for friend. So there's friendships deep in there, all right? But it is sort of this, you know, love is not, um, it's not, not in there, if you know what I mean. Um, if you're familiar, though, in the West with this distinction between eros and agape, this kind of erotic love versus more like platonic friendship love, which is agape, which the, kind of is a Christian notion or value. Meta is much closer. I, In terms of my understanding, it's a lot closer to agape that way and what the Greeks were tripping on in terms of agape. Um, yeah. I have a general question.
2: So I've been reading, um, you know, a lot of Mahamudra texts and tantric texts, and Plex and, um, and um, from different Tibetan religious texts. And young people you, feel like metta. I've, I've never really encountered metta. And so the question I I learned metta really like just recently, like three four years ago, through Jack Confield because he's into, like all metta metta. So my question to you is, like, can you s- like, um, say a little bit about the role of metta in general in Buddhist text,
0: how important it is? Or? Um, so the, what happens is, is that the actual idea of metta, as I just said, there's only three sutras in the whole Pali canon that deal with it, and two of those are the same sutra. So there's actually only two sutras that deal with it. And this sutra is just talking about the benefits of the first one. So there's actually only one sutta, uh, the whole polycanon, that really deals with this idea. And as I already noted, it's at the the very end, miscellaneous category buried in some miscellaneous collection of miscellaneous. You know, so... In terms of the Pali tradition, it's not very important at all. In terms of the Theravada tradition, it's not traditionally it's not very important. What happened was, and I mean, this is part of a much larger history that I can't, I don't really want to get into tonight. But it's about how the West, how English-speaking Americans or British, how we came to know about Buddhism at all, and whether it was Tibetan or Theravadan and how. And so what happened was, is that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when these Europeans were going to Southeast Asia and learning all about Buddhism, they were not being monastics. Madame Blavatsky went down to, to uh, Cambodia or Thailand or wherever, and she got ordained along with the, the Colonel Alcott, and Aleister Crowley was down there too, and all this weird group of people that were down there interested in Buddhism. But they were not interested in renouncing. They were not a- interested, actually, in the way of the al- elders, the Theravada. They are not interested in that. They were interested in uh, doing all kinds of stuff. So this sort of, like, Western, English-speaking, curious group that had no... It's like they're, they're reading the Diga Nikaya, the Majima Nikaya, the Samnuta Nikaya, and they're going, celibacy, eh, celibacy, eh, no drugs, what, come on, next, 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 and they're really skipping over all the lessons that are for renunciants regarding celibacy, living frugally, extremely frugally, like all the stuff, they're like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. Wait, what's this one about love? Yeah, and they literally took this one out of their... And um, you get a book like this, classic book called What the Buddha Taught by a a, a monk, a bhikkhu actually, Wapu Rahula, and he translates the Meta Sutra back here. Jack Cornfield loves the Meta Sutra. Everybody goes Meta Sutra crazy. And I'm not, and again, I'm not saying it's not a great sutra, full of virtue and all that, but let's be real (laughs) about just the ratio, the ratio of celibacy to metta, it's like, it's really misrepresenting it. And my thing is, is that if you're really interested in, in not even metta, but in particular, karuna, compassion, I mean, the whole Mahayana tradition and the Bodhisattva path is a type of Buddhism based on metta and karuna. It's like, all the sutras are filled with is save all sentient beings, love all sentient beings. That's the Bodhisattva path. So for me, anybody that's really interested in metta and loving kindness and in particular Karuna or compassion, come on over to the Mahayana. Come on over to these Mahayana sutras in particular, anything dealing with the Bodhisattva path. Cause that's all about metta and it's not an obscure idea in the Mahayana. It's like, it is the idea. So, there's that, but again, the you know Buddhism is is throughout history. You know because even um, how can I put this? Oh, by the way, this is interesting. If I if I I didn't say this tonight, so these collections that are called the Nikayas, these all get translated into Chinese in the mid second century A.D. around one. 40 or 150 AD, these all get translated into Chinese. So somehow these made it all the way through Central Asia, made it all the way through the Gobi Desert, made it all the way to China by the second century AD, and were all translated into Chinese, and they don't call them Nikayas, the Chinese called them Agamas. But if you're a scholar, such as myself, and you're ever really interested in one of these, which are written in Pali, Southeast Asian language, preserved in Thailand. What's fascinating is is that you can get the Thai or the Pali version and then get a Chinese version that are separated by thousands of years and compare them and see where there's differences in language, I mean, this is the scholarship of translation is when you are doing that type of work. But it's amazing that these all got translated into Chinese and that they exist, and not only that they exist, but that if you do a comparison to uh, it's amazing how similar they are. Like, you know, people have notions of, um, what can I say? People have notions of history and the telephone game, and they think like, oh, all of history must be totally corrupt and just fully, like, just totally distorted because the telephone game, you know? I tell you, you change a little bit. Then you tell somebody, they change a little bit. And by the time you get seven, eight phone calls down the line, it's like an entirely different message, right? Right? This is like the kind of an assumption of history, that it must be so corrupted because of the telephone game. Well, again, if you go dig out the Chinese version of this and then compare it to this Pali version, which are separated by so far geographically and so far linguistically and so far temporally in terms of the time period, and then you match them, and they're almost the same. That's actually very edifying, or, or, or something, to know. Like, oh wow, we can kind of trust this stuff. You know that the, the telephone game, the telephone game doesn't take into consideration faith. <laughs> that people copying these sutras felt that their very karmic existence was on the line if they changed even a word of the Buddha's teachings. You know, whereas you play the telephone game, you think it's funny if you change a word. And that's indeed how corruption happens. Is because, oh, I'll just tweak a word. It doesn't really matter. But these folks seem to have a much more, you know, they were aware of the telephone game and they're like, yo, let's not change even a single word. We gotta keep this stuff pure. So that's interesting. The reason why I bring all that up is that if you, the Chinese, when they got a hold of these sutras, they did the same thing where they were like, eh, 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 eh. Ooh, what's that? A, a crazy god with uh, seven heavens and all of this? That sounds interesting. Oh, how about this? How about that? And the Chinese did the same thing where they found things that, of Buddhism that they liked and blew that up and said, this is what Buddhism is. And we've done the same thing where we said, ah, oh, Buddhism is all about meta. And yeah, there's a way in which, look around. Buddhism is all about meta, is it not. In the sense that it's promoted, Jack Cornfield's out there, Spirit Rock's doing meta. You know, meta meditation's huge in the Buddhist world. So you could, you could argue and say, I don't know, it shouldn't be or whatever, but that it is, is self-evident, right?
2: I mean, if you think of like Western audience, i mainly Christians. And like mm-hmm. in Christianity, you have this, you should love yourself like your neighbor or sometimes mm-hmm. your neighbor like yourself. So mm-hmm. it's very easy to understand for Westerners.
0: I want to. I have something to say about that, but we'll we'll get there.
1: Same thing. But what was the uh, the money? Talks about the history. The first book of Buddhism written by the the, the Bible, the, the Buddhist Bible. Mm-hmm.
0: The Goddard Bible. Yeah. Stuff. The Goddard Bible. The Goddard Bible. Well, the Buddha. Yeah, the actual. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> and there, you know the, that it was heavily influenced by the the, the, the commentaries. Every. Influenced by Christian thought and Christian base, meta agape. This is Western. This is very Western for me, mm-hmm. and, uh, because uh, you know because I, I was born and raised here. Yep. Mm-hmm. 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 I don't remember if it was you or somebody
3: was talking about how it's big in the West because we're kind of socialized to kind of hate ourselves in the West. So we need Metta
2: in a way that, like, culturally, in a mm-hmm. way that maybe, I mean, Western <coughs> culture
3: is less interested in the individual at all and then less socialized to have so much, like,
1: shame.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and it's, like, not the way we opposite to Metta. Is
2: that Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, that's... Too, like, original sin
0: and... Yeah, I mean, you know, this this idea of Christian and not Christian is tricky. It gets tricky because I've, I've said in the past that a lot of things that we... Might think are Christian are actually originally Buddhist influences on Christianity. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, you know, and I've mentioned various kind of uh, uh, examples of that. Um, let's I want to keep that. Let's keep this that idea going though about that relationship. The just to, on some ideas because uh, I'm going to get more into these Viharas now, and I just want to talk a little bit about it. because this gets a little out there. And I'm just. Interested, what what you all think about it? So again, this sutta just talks about metta, and and if we discard this, the uh, the commentary about where it comes from, it doesn't even talk about it in terms of overcoming this uh, animosity of others or something to that effect. It's really just about that this is what should be done, you know, by one. Let's let's get a different translation. So here's a let's do. uh, So what should be done by one skillful in good so as to gain the state of peace? Uh, Let him be able and upright and straight, Um, easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented to, supported easily with few tasks, living very lightly. His faculties serene, prudent and modest, unswayed by the emotions of the clans and let him never do the slightest thing that one why that otherwise men might hold uh, as blameable. Uh, So, again, nothing specifically Buddhist, and it's sort of about being a good person, good to others, right? It overcomes drowsiness. That's helpful, right? Let him resolve upon this mindfulness. This is the divine abiding, which this abode I want to get into in a second, um, here. Uh, But when he has no trafficking with views terrible translation is virtuous and has perfected seeing and purges greed for sensual desires he surely comes no more to any womb and most of the translations end not with that he won't be reborn but that he will no longer visit a womb is the language actually of the of it okay so i want to talk about that ending and kind of bring this to a larger context. So within the Buddhist world, and again outlined in one of the sutras in the Diganikaya, there is this Brahma Vihara or Viharas, plural. These four abodes of Brahma. If you don't know, you know India, Indian mythology or theology is sort of it's tricky, complicated. I'm not an expert on it at all. But in general, what you should know is that there's sort of a general notion of these three maybe it's one god seen three ways, maybe it's three gods, each with a role. But you've got Vishnu as this creator god that kind of has created the world in some way. Some say Vishnu is dreaming, and as he inhales, a lotus flower grows out of his uh, navel, and then on that lotus flower, the world is created, and then as he begins to Exhale, that lotus flower wilts, the world dies and goes back into his womb. And then he takes another breath and it grows again. And so this is all Vishnu's dream as he inhales and exhales, they say. Or he literally in some kind of godlike laboratory has created the world. Who knows? There's this idea of a creative power of God. Please discard any Western notions you have of men with white beards on clouds and things like that. When I say the word God, think of a principle, think of a power, think of a force or something like that. I don't know, but a divine force that makes this world called Vishnu. Then there's Brahma that we're talking about. This is the sustainer of the world. Brahma is known to have all of these like forms. I don't want to call them incarnations because the incarnation of a god is a big deal in India and in Indian culture, and it happens. So we need to hold off on that idea of incarnation. Brahma has all these forms, and actually, if you know the Buddhist or Indian mythology of there being Mount Maru, this giant axial mountain in the center of the world, well, there are these levels of heaven, heavenly abodes that kind of go up Mount Maru some are in the realm of desire some are in the realm of form some are in the formless realm and there's all these different kinds of brahma that rule over these abodes it gets very complicated in terms of all of that and then finally there's shiva the destroyer god who wakes from his meditative state and destroys the whole world there's a way in which each of us is shiva the destroyer of this world once we get enlightened and overcome it and destroy it Anyways, those are the ideas, those creator God, sustainer God, destroyer God. That's the, the idea here. Brahma, again, is this notion of a sustaining God, you know, for whatever the word God is worth in our language. Brahma certainly fits it, right? Um, this word, Vihara, is very interesting, being translated as an abode of Brahma but a vihara is actually this buddhist word for a monastery. The the early buddhist word for a gathering when the monks monks got together um for shelter, either during the, during the rainy season or just for a night for a meditation, that was called a vihara. And then the, the word vihara actually becomes essentially monastery. It's kind of I mean monastery is, you know, a western word, but vihara is this Sanskrit Indian idea. So these are Brahma's viharas and he is said to have these four abodes. Now okay so this is where it gets tricky. The Indian tradition and even the Buddhist tradition is very clear that Brahma's abodes that are on the like on on and around Mount Meru it's very clear that they're physical places that are certain m- numbers of miles or yojanas high. So they're, they're, they're very clear that they're up there and they're literally up there, like in a la- you know, vertical sense like that. Keep that in mind. This idea of these abodes... Mm, are these heavens? Are these states of mind? You know, I'll let you choose. You choose. I just want you to know all the options. And I don't want you to do just dismiss anything out of hand. Like the like the, this idea of like, well, that would be kind of a tough. I would need a really big ladder or an elevator or something to get up there. If you're telling me the first level of Brahma's heaven is... Uh, you know, 100,000 yojanas high, um, I can't reach that, right? Well, your physical rupa body wouldn't be able to reach that, but your consciousness could reach that, is the idea. Are you ready to separate the two? Are you ready to allow for the possibility that your consciousness could travel elsewhere, a place that your physical body might not? If you're like, no way. I only go where my physical body goes, then you're never going to the Brahma heavens, sorry. It's just, that's the way it works. If you're clinging to the physical body as you, and that's just the way it is, and you have such dogmatic views about that, well, then that dogmatic view might be exactly that thing keeping you from the Brahma heavens. I don't know. Um, One more thing on that, I know I'm kind of getting a little all over the place. Stop me at any point if it gets too rambly. The Brahma-viharas are also sometimes called the four immeasurables or the four boundless realms. And it's not clear about whether the inability to measure them, their immeasurableness, or their boundlessness. It's, It's a little unclear about whether that measurability and boundlessness applies to the realm, like that realm is boundless, or is the like the meta boundless and immeasurable? Like like that love that a mother has for their only child? Is that immeasurable? Like you couldn't possibly measure how much love that is. Somewhere in there is this idea of the four immeasurables. Alright? Okay. Well, let's go through these real quickly. Although I could just tell you about this one. The idea of doing this meditation on, on metta or using metta. It's a very subtle difference between those two actually, but a very kind of important difference. The idea of actually meditating On loving-kindness as if it's in front of you like an object and you use it as a as an anchor for meditation that is one way in which this works and there's a way in which these Brahma Viharas in Buddhism it's a way in which these become objects of sati objects of mindfulness or concentration In any, in any event, for the most part, these, this practice that I'm about to describe, that the sutra sort of describes, and I'll describe in more detail, this practice is typically considered a shamathic, calming, concentration exercise. So if you're familiar with Buddhist meditation, you know there's sort of two types of meditation, calming meditation and contemplative meditation. Shamatha and Vipassana, one is passive, utterly, absolutely passive. The other one is slightly active or dynamic. Mm -hmm. Typically, this falls under the um, shamatha, calming, otherwise known as dhyana meditation. The general idea being that, of all Buddhist meditation, the idea being that our minds are going way too fast with way too many ideas and way too much emotion around those ideas. And all of that activity has us really, really worked up. Like, really worked up. And so, any kind of dhyana, any kind of um, shamatha, any kind of calming or dhyana-type meditation The whole point of it, very simply, if you didn't know, the whole point of it is that we have a million things on our mind and it would be really helpful to get it down to one. And there are typically 108 different things you could focus your mind on in order to bring it to singularity. Single focus, single pointed awareness. That's the goal of shamatha or dhyana, that you only have one thing on your mind. Right? And again, that one thing, it could be a candle flame, it could be in a, a certain mind state, it could be a dharmic truth, it could be a bunch of different things, and it actually ultimately doesn't matter from a Buddhist point of view. You could choose a, a, a little piece of lint from your pocket but if you could get your mind to be focused exclusively on that lint and on nothing else in the entire universe, just that, it would achieve the same shamathic common goal—that uh, what they call sati, mindfulness, concentrated awareness. These are also focuses of concentration and awareness, but they're also this sort of emotional state that the the Buddha or Buddhists are playing with that bring about this calm state of being, right? Again, meditating on metta as an idea or actually radiating out that emotion. Like I just said, the the sutta suggests imagining all other beings as being like a mother to their only child, having that same relationship. So it's, I mean, love, love your neighbor as yourself, that's one thing. Loving all beings as, as if you were their mother and they were your only child, that's, that's, some, that's another thing, right? So this metta becomes a practice of actually, it suggests that in the sutta and then Buddhist meditation teachers, this is how they traditionally teach it, is by radiating out that loving-kindness or metta, right? Now, the Brahma-Viharas, they go progressively from an initial state where you're having this metta or loving-kindness for all beings, and then that goes to a deeper state of karuna or compassion. This is actually considered a deeper, deeper in the sense of less self interested, that makes sense. Mudita, the third of Brahma's abodes, is usually translated as empathic or empathetic joy. This is a very interesting idea, Mudita. This is about being really happy for everybody else, and they, there's another, uh, it's another commentary, it's not a sutra, it's a commentary on Mudita. And they talk about it as um, the, the way that a parent is proud of their child, child's accomplishments, and they're like, oh, having that same feeling for everybody and their accomplishments. That's mudita, being really stoked for everybody <laughs> is, is that. And again, the idea is, is that it's sort of like the self centeredness and I don't mean that in terms of like egotism, I just mean in terms of like the self-centeredness moving out. The idea is that meta is very sort of like me loving you. The Karuna is supposed to be this more empathetic, like I'm kind of not thinking about myself, and that's so I'm compassionate for you. Now it's just like I'm totally, it's not even about me, it's only about you. And in in a good way, of like, I'm so stoked for you. The fourth and final Brahma Vihara here, the fourth immeasurable, is upeksha. In Pali, it's just upekka. But upeksha is a really important Buddhist idea, so I use the Sanskrit. Usually translated as equanimity, I have it here as non-dual peace and tranquility. Because the whole idea of upeksha is that you have crossed a line where there is no longer a subject-object relationship happening. In metta there's me and everybody. I love you all. In Karuna, there's me and everybody. I'm compassionate towards you all. In Mudita, there's me and everybody, and I'm stoked for you all. Upeksha, there's no more me going towards you. There's a dissolution of the self when, reaches, when one reaches this stage of Upeksha. There's no more in, there's no more outside-inside. Like, we have the notion of inside me and outside me. That's that's a dualism. That's false. It's just your mind discriminating and deciding that's the way it's going. So we have the notion of in and out. And then we also have the the idea of self and other. And in upeksha, those dissolve. In and out, there's like, I've used the example of the breath, but is your breath outside of you? Is it inside of you? Is, is your breath you? That relationship of the breath and all those conundrums of is it outside, is it inside, is it me, is it distinct from me? All of that is what gets kind of resolved in Upaksha. if that makes sense. <laughs> or that the confusion around all of that gets resolved, right? Um,
2: but Netta, Karuna, and Mudita is always um, subject and object, right? It's always loving kindness towards all beings and not towards myself.
0: Not necessarily. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want to say that because e- this sutra doesn't say it, but it's almost, ah, uh, I should, I got to mention this. There is, uh, a commentary. One of these commentaries I mentioned. There's a text called the Visuddhimagga. Uh, at some point, I, it's written by a guy named Buddha Gosha. Uh, at some point, I, I attributed it to the wrong person. But this is a, called the Path of Purification. This actually talks a lot about the Brahma Viharas. Uh, this is a real like practical Practice manual for Pali based Theravada Buddhism. And in here, he describes, Buddha Gosha describes in the Vasuddhimagga, he describes the practice more in detail. And it's very clear that actually there's a process of extending the metta out and then extending the metta towards oneself. Then the Karuna then the karuna towards oneself, then the mudita, then the mudita towards oneself. And then somehow in that back and forth process, it brings about this upekshik equilibrium. So yes, very much, it's very important that it be also directed towards the self. Now, a lot of Buddhist teachers will use these, these four abodes expediently in that sense of, Uh, In in the sense of if somebody is very, very egocentric, then it would be very good to extend the emotions outward. And they wouldn't spend as much time showering oneself with the, the metta, if you know what I mean. So this gets used a lot by teachers expediently for all kinds of reasons. Not unlike the Buddha did in terms of giving it to the monks for their yaksha problems. No.
1: Just, uh, last week we were talking about the six principles of uh, cor- uh, mm-hmm. Yes, and the first body acts of meta, vocal acts of meta, mental acts of meta, and then the, the sharing of common things, sharing mm. of virtues, and sharing of common views. And mm. This is really tied into this here because there is the act of meta. It's a, it's an act that you mentally. I feel that there's. Act in, as in agreement with all those mm-hmm. action, you know, that that's what we all agree on or not. Uh, that there is an action, so this is tying in
0: a lot to this for the summit yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was joking with uh, with someone that I'm I, I, I always I really feel like a DJ. <laughs> because it's like at the end of last time we were talking about metta, so kind of fade into a metta sutra, right? <laughs> it makes sense in my mind. Um, but yeah, that was exactly the idea, is that that sutra ended with this idea that maintain cohesion, you should think, speak, and act with metta. So it's kind of helpful to know, well, what is that? Well, it's all of these things, right? Uh, What being upright, being very upright, right? Um, Being frugal. um, Some of these use the Buddhist language of right livelihood. They talk about having a simple livelihood, simple life. Uh, That's a big part of it. Um, I wanted to get to the the big part and we should do it. So the end of this, which says about, um, so not having erroneous views endowed with virtues and insight with sensual desires abandoned, he would come no more to be conceived in a womb. That's the end. So there's three very important parts to that. Um, not, ha- um, not having attachment to views, abandoning sensual desire, and not being reborn. All right. So there's this idea Oh, there's so many different ideas going on in here. So the other idea of an abode that I want you to know this because it's very helpful if you're really interested in Buddhism and all this Buddhist discourse. So there's this idea of stations or abodes of practice and it's it's tricky, it's always tricky with the, when the Western mind has very kind of rigid views of ideas and things, but the idea of an abode is that when you're in the karma dhatu in the regular old world, your abode or your station is the karmadatu, is the realm of desire. And so Buddhism talks about these stations or abodes and what they mean is, like, where you stand, Like, what, where are you doing your meditation? And the idea is that when you start, you're on a cushion. Your, your abode or your station is in the realm of rupa, form, and desire, and all of that. The idea, though, is that when you transcend that body, and it's just your consciousness, perhaps, and you're just in the realm of metta here, in this Brahma Vihara, the idea is that you've sort of either like kind of quasi been reborn in a different abode, a different station. And then there's a different station above that. They talk about them as either rungs of a ladder or these stations. And there's an idea of like a progression. And this becomes important because there's so much discourse in Buddhism about where this takes place. And then ultimately, the practice will be one where there's no abode. No, non-abiding. That's a, that's, a little, that's a leap. We're back in Theravada land. We're no, nowhere near that. But the idea of there being no abode and the profundity of that idea... It comes from this long discourse in Buddhism of going to all these different abodes, all these different stations. And they're like, well, did you get to station 23 today? Oh, yeah, I got to this and this. And then eventually they reach this idea of no abode, of not abiding anywhere, which is a very interesting idea, okay? So the language, what happens is, is that they talk about being reborn in Brahma's heavens. Like while you're meditating, you get reborn in Brahma in heaven. You're like, hey, Brahma, how's it going? And so one idea is that you get acquainted with those abodes. And what the Buddha is saying in in this, or whoever, whoever, you know, recited, whoever said this first, says, you don't get reborn in the womb. The Buddha went on to say, you don't get reborn in the womb. There is an entire... Discourse in Theravada Buddhism about non-returners. There's a discourse about once-returners, meaning you're only going to be reborn in this world one more time. And then there's the idea of non-returner. You're not coming back. This sutra and Buddhism is saying that if you meditate on metta, you're not coming back. If you do it right, you're not coming back. You, you, you will be reborn again in a different abode, but it will not be in this, this karmadhatu or possibly rupadhatu. Yes?
2: It sounds kind of strange to me because the Bodhisattva promise, you know, keeps telling, like, you know, let me be reborn again, as, you know, until everybody is enlightened and liberated, so...
0: And the bod- that Bodhisattva path is actually counter to this whole idea, actually. This whole idea is like the Buddha or whoever is like, hey, I got your ticket out of here. I got your ticket out of here. And everybody's like, great. And they're on the Meta Express out of here. And the Bodhisattvas are actually the ones that are like, no, I'm coming back into the the world until everybody's on the Meta Express type of a thing. So there is a big, uh, I mean, I, I say this all the time. There's a big difference between old school Uh, monastic-based Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. There's a huge difference in some regards.
3: Yeah, uh, the role of celibacy in in, uh, the Eastern belief systems sounds different than... Certainly celibacy is part of monastic traditions within Christianity in the Middle Eastern and Western faiths. But it it seems to take on a very different tone in terms of being part of... About that?
0: Sure, it's come up a few times. Um, so there's two very important ideas about sexuality that, and, and as it pertains to renunciation and all of this. One is, let me see. One is about sexual energy, and the other is about, um, I guess reincarnation. Or something to that effect. So, first, sexual energy. So, all, not just the Buddhists, the Taoists, the Hindus, everybody is saying that sexual energy in both men and women is crazy potent stuff. So potent, actually, it can make another human life. It's that strong. It has that much oomph to it. And the idea is is that for males, when we... um, Yeah, basically, whenever we ejaculate... Bye. See ya, energy. Now, that energy could go into the womb again and make a baby. Or it can just fall on the ground. And you've lost the energy. They say... Within the same tradition, meaning the meditator tradition that's focused on sexual energy, they say that in females, that sexual energy coagulates into an egg once a month. And again, has so much power it can make a baby. Or it goes with the, the lining down, down the toilet. Right? So we are both, men and women, in the business of developing the sexual energy and then either doing something with it or not doing something with it. And in, for both men and women, in Buddhism, again, Taoism, Hinduism, you name it, the name of the game is preserving sexual energy. It's the name of the game. Everybody seems to be saying that the preserving of sexual energy has incredible benefits to it, health benefits, because again, they say that that energy is really potent and that if we disregard it, we don't get it. We don't get to have that energy. But we could re- have it. There's all kinds of really high-tech meditation techniques for actually transforming that sexual energy. So you have to preserve it in order to transform it. And then there's all kinds of worlds of things going on with that. Okay, everybody following me on that? Believe it or not, but that's just the ide- ideology that's going on. So that's regarding why I should be celibate in this pursuit. The idea is, is that I'm losing that vital energy and I should preserve it. There's all very, very subtle other, other things going on too. Let's just leave it at that then. Now there's this reincarnation thing. Buddhism, like Christianity in the early days, Buddhism in the early days, like Christianity in the early days, had a very, very low opinion of this world, very low. Buddhism saw this world as just the source of our sufferings. It's all like, eh, just trying to tease us into being reborn here, tease us into wanting and suffering and all of that. That's what it's in the business of. And in particular, what the whole operation does is sort of trick us into facilitating the capturing of souls and bringing them into this prison of the world. That's the idea that it would be far better actually for that process to stop and everybody to just get um, to deal with their sexual energy. That's, that's the idea. But we're in the business of keeping the whole samsar cycle going around and around and around. Again, Christianity originally had this view as well. Originally, Christians were not having babies. They were like, no, we're out of here soon. We're out of here very soon. This world is a total shadow of reality and JC or whoever is coming soon to take us to the real world. So don't even bother, you know, you want to get married or whatever. Paul says, whatever, you can get married, but don't bother with all the kids and all of that stuff because we're out of here soon. So there was a big, uh, by the way, this worldview that this world sort of sucks and there's better places to be or go. That general worldview is called Gnosticism or a Gnostic worldview. If you've ever heard of it, that's the general ideology behind Gnosticism is this dualism between this world, which is considered dark, shadow world, and then a a realm of pure light where we're really from. We're actually just vague reflections of that pure light world. But we don't know that and we love the shadow world and just like Buddha says, we're all mired in it, just trapped in it. So those are the two fronts. Don't waste your sexual energy, preserve it and use it for your improvement and betterment and don't keep trapping the little babies back down into this world. Don't do it. Now, both traditions shed their Gnostic origins. (laughs) Both traditions eventually were like, okay, this world probably I guess isn't that bad or at least we're not going anywhere anytime soon so let's get cool with it or whatever. Now, Buddhism, Buddhism maintains the celibacy. They're all about it. That's what they're in the business of doing and they're in the business of that for so many reasons. I mean, they're in the business of doing it, A, because they're in the business of preserving their sexual energy. B, they're not in the business of developing relationships and paying bills and getting all into that. They're renouncing this world. So they're just like are not into getting involved in any of that. And then it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So that's the celibacy thing. What's that?
1: Sensual pleasure. Well,
0: indeed. Indeed, because it becomes very tricky, I guess, to... Engage in sexuality without sensual pleasure and desire, right? Because it's kind of all about that, a little bit. Yeah?
2: I, I have a question about the realms, because, you know, when you um, share with us that the view was that this realm is like the shadow or negative or suffering, I do Then I remember the, the six realms that we had, right? The ghost realm, the mm-hmm. animal realm, according to Buddhist texts, the human form, at least what they say is the most precious one because we are the, the only ones in a realm that can um, have the capacity and have the potential for enlightenment, right? So that confu- confuses me a little bit, like mm. what you just said and thinking about the six realms. Because when I think about, okay, what your mom, my next incarnation, you know, I hope if I'm not enlightened in this life, then I still hope I will, you know, experience the human form because it's the only realm mm-hmm. there's the potential of, of liberation in you know, the liberation. So I don't really see the connection between that and what you just said that this human form and realm is because when I'm thinking about okay, you know, if I, you know, make wishes, so my next form I want to incarnate or something or when you embargo, I would say at one point you die and you embargo, and then consciousness, the stream of consciousness is Looking for its next form, mm-hmm. right? In my, I thought like you know, it's still the best. The human experience is still the best form because there's the potential of enlightenment. But on the other side, when you say, "Well, it's the dark,"
0: mm. you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. A gap
2: between.
0: I think maybe it would help to clarify okay. that in the realm. Uh, so. In this, so again, if, if you haven't heard this before, Buddhism has this kind of general view of the world we live in, uh, that there's sort of like three sheaths or layers to this world. Uh, there's sort of this realm of desire, the karma datu or the kamadatu. Uh, a realm of just form and then even a formless realm. right? I, I've, I've said this before if you haven't seen it. This is a great example. This isn't the best example because a 20 or 100 is, is the, the, a better example. But I'll start with this. This is a great example of the three realms. The realm of desire, the realm of form, and the formless realm. Because if this were, certainly if this were like a $100 bill, right? The amount that you would be projecting onto this odd little rectangular piece of green paper, (laughs) you would be projecting onto it a lot though. What you could do with it, the value of it. Like if I were to start to rip it, like how you would feel about that, right? If I just had a rectangular green sheet of paper... (laughs) and I ripped it, you would not have little heart palpitations. But if I had a $100 bill and started ripping it, you would have feelings about that, right? Why? It's a rectangular green sheet of paper. What exactly is going on with these symbols and numbers and all of this? Well, the idea is is that just like this dollar bill, you're projecting desire and value. And, and remember, always remember, from the Buddhist point of view, desire can be operating two ways. Desire can be like, yeah, ooh, give me it. Ah, I could do so much with it. But desire could also be a sense of like, money's filthy. Get it away. That stuff's, that stuff's polluting my, my aura. or You know, whatever. Like this idea... Like, you could not like it because it's like, oh, Andrew Jackson or you know, George Washington, he had slaves and da-da-da. He had fake teeth made out of teeth of his slaves and stuff. This guy was his terrible, <laughs> right? So you have all types of feelings about pictures, portraits, and symbols and stuff, right? But you see what I'm saying. That's all just, you're projecting it onto a rectangular green sheet of paper, right? Right? So if, if you could, if you could control your mind, watch your mind, control your mind and realize, oh, I'm projecting what I could do with $100 onto that little rectangular sheet of paper. I'm projecting that. I'm projecting that uh, that I don't like American politics. I'm projecting that I don't like fiat currencies and fractal banking and all of that. I'm projecting all of that, right? What if I could not do that? What if I could not project all of those feelings and emotions and history and past history and all of that? I would arrive at just the realm of form. Rectangular, thin, you know, perhaps green, right? But just the form. None of, you wouldn't even, in a way, in a way, numbers, letters, gone. It would just be shape in the realm of pure form because you would lose all of your want, the karma. The, it's called the karma or the kamadatu, the desire realm. So you would lose that and be like, oh, just rectangular, sheet, paper, green, whatever. But then you could go further with your meditation and realize these ideas of geometric shape, like a rectangle, that you learned in elementary school that that's just a projection of an idea. Color, somebody who's colorblind would not see a green sheet of paper, right? And of course, it's not even a sheet of paper. It's made of cotton, so it's closer to your clothes, right? So there's a way in which you could then start to even get rid of the lines of disambiguation that make it, it, you, you, and eventually through meditation, you could dissolve into this formless realm where literally the lines that delineate the rectangle would dissolve. Because indeed it is your mind that's saying this. These air molecules, that's not a dollar bill. That's not a dollar bill. That's it. It's your mind that's saying this isn't that. Right? So the formless realm is when your mind stops (laughs) cutting these things up into me it it stops here starts there right everybody follow me on that i have still going still going but okay so that's your quick introduction to the realm of desire but how it's just a projection like to information that then could be withdrawn it could be brought back to the source which is your mind And then you'd be like, oh, it's just that. But then you would realize, oh, it's my mind projecting the rectangle. So I would pull back even the shape, color, number, all of that, and then be in the formless realm. The same thing that's happening with this is happening everywhere with all of it. Other people, what you think you could get out of them, whether you think they're pretty or not, whether you think you're biologically compatible. All of these things that are actually going on at a very subtle subconscious level when you see anybody, you're actually genetically sizing them up for compatibility and mating and all of this. Like all I mean not that, and that's just one little layer because you're also doing all kinds of layers of karma karma dhatu projection on everything. And again, what if you could pull all of that back from the whole world and just be in the realm of pure form, just in the realm of of the formless realm, right? Uh, hell dwellers The lowest of the six. Hungry ghosts, pretty bad. The animals, those are the three lower births. Humans, this precious realm that we're in. The demigods, or asuras. And then the devas and the gods. They're all in the realm of desire. The best place to be born in the realm of desire, yes, is a human. But it's not the best place to be reborn. Does that make a little sense in terms of why like, they're saying you should actually be trying to be reborn in a Brahma heaven, which is either formless or just a realm of form. There are these heavenly abodes. By the way, there's a whole thing in Buddhist cosmology that this world that we live in eventually gets scorched, flooded, destroyed. And if you are in one of the Brahma Viharas, you are spared those catastrophes. Those conscious realms are not destroyed physically, they say.
3: Uh, What's the relation between realm reformers and perfection? The loss of object and subject. Are they the same thing?
0: So, here is the thing. This is a classic Buddhist practice. The Brahma Vihara. Let's do some metta, karuna, mudita, and then finally rpeksha, the radiating out, radiating towards oneself. But again, the Buddha said that practice will get you to Brahma. You want to go have tea with Brahma, you do that practice. The Buddha seems to have contrasted that practice with his practice, which are the four dhyanas. They look very similar. Very, very similar. There's, of course, four dhyanas. There's four levels. And the fourth dhyana, the highest, deepest dhyana, is upeksha. So the Buddha's practice of dhyana and the four dhyanas, or the four absorptions, and this old-school, original Brahma-vihara practice, they both end at the same place. The Buddha, however, I'm not going to go looking for it, but he said that that practice, this brahma Vihara practice, does not result in nirvana, in the cutting off of desire. It results in a trip to Brahma, to heaven. He says, my practice, though, results in the cutting off of the desire. Now, this original Sutta that I read, it also says or suggests Uh, cutting off sensual desire. This idea of cutting off sensual desire, I cannot stress this enough, but that is the name of the Buddhist game. And you could go all the way to renunciation and monkhood with that level, or you could just see where in your life you're suffering due to an over-desire for sensual pleasure. (laughs) Because that's what the Buddha's saying, is, is that any suffering, it's your wanting or craving or holding on to sensual pleasures. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. You want to see stuff, you know, if you get bored. If you you know, people go to a museum and it's like one painting and it's like, Ugh, like, oh, can I I need more stimuli, right? I need more. I'm bored. My eyes are bored. Right? Or Auditory. I need headphones. I need whatever. I, you know, silence. It's. I need. You know, any kind of boredom from the senses. Whether you want stimuli from that, the Buddha is saying, like, check that. Check your need for that. And again, I want to always make clear: the Buddha is not saying, don't listen to music. Don't. No. 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 He's saying, check your relationship to it. Meaning, if your battery dies on your phone, now what? If you're cool, then you, you succeeded. You, you, pra- you did the practice right. If the, if the battery dies in your phone, you're like, sweet. Yeah. Then you did it right. If you freak out, if you freak out because the battery on your phone died, you're doing it wrong. You're doing life wrong. Is what the Buddha is saying. You're doing it wrong. And that, and that anxiety of the phone dying, ask yourself why. Why are you freaking out? Because the battery died. Oh no, because I need to talk to this person. I have to do, it's all things you want. And you can ultimately lead it all to things you want. That's the idea. All right. I think I covered everything. Yes.
1: Did you write out the four absorptions?
0: Well, yeah, I mean the four absorptions are not described I mean, they're not named so much as they're described by these senses of joy. Um, I mean, it's hard because there's different... Um, there's different descriptions of them, but I can tell you that the what would correspond to the realm of metta, the first dhyana, they say, is marked by joy, great joy, great delight. You're, you're ecstatic. You're... Um, basically not embodied. So that's cool. That's the idea. Um, And most importantly is is that there's discursive thought. You are thinking, wow, this is great. I've never felt so free. In the second dhyana, that joy gets muted a little bit, kind of a delight, also discursive, but it's kind of chill. The third dhyana is this contentment with no discursion. It's just this like feeling of being content. And then the fourth is Upeksha, is this non-dual state of peace and tranquility. So again, they arrive at the same place, and if you look closely, it's like, ah. you know, and there's people who want to like put these four in there, and I think there's just a way in which they're related, if you know what I mean. And I think there's a way that the Buddha, the subtlety of the Dharma is in the practice of the dhyanas. And the Brahma Viharas are a little more, not quite as subtle, in my opinion, in that way. I'm also a Mahayana guy, you guys know that, and so there's a way in which this practice really reifies a lot of self and other in a certain way, or has the potential for that. It arrives at Upeksha, but before we get there, we're doing a bunch of othering which I'm not always supportive of, but I'm also a big like, believer in upaya, that these are expedient means, and so there's a place for this, for sure.
3: Um, so you're talking about early Buddhism. Did, did they ever talk about emptiness?
0: Yeah, I'm going to do the early, early, early emptiness sutra, sutra soon. Okay. And we'll look at what, how they were talking about it. But yeah, they are... One of my things I always like to do in these classes is point out how all the Mahayana ideas like emptiness and these things are all in early Buddhism. Or even like something like Metta, again, buried in the fifth Nikaya. There is this idea of, of extreme compassion for all beings and it just so happens that the Bodhisattva Mahayana path, they say, yeah, let's, we're going to run with this Metta thing. Ooh, emptiness, dependent origination... Like there's just these ideas that Mahayana said this is brilliant, this is genius, this is amazing, and then went with it. So it's a whole Buddhist tradition built on like the genius stuff, in in my opinion, in that way. With some of the more either arcane or dated stuff left behind. There's a lot of patriarchy in, in the early Buddhist tradition that gets totally left behind in the Mahayana tradition. Like, what? Why are we being patriot? How can the men be above the women? Duh. Like, so. Uh, real quickly, just because I didn't mention it, this other Metta Sutta, these are the 11 benefits of doing Metta. So, Metta as a meditation practice, but again, like in the last sutra we read, you're supposed to be doing Metta, like, even when you're just talking to people, thinking, acting all the time. And if you do that, if you practice metta successfully, you are guaranteed a good night's sleep. You're guaranteed a good rising or good waking up, feeling refreshed and all of that. You're guaranteed not to have bad dreams. You will be dear to people, dear to non-human beings, protected by deities, not harmed by fire, poison, or weapons. You will have good sati, or good concentration, a good complexion, you will die unconfused, and you will be reborn in Brahman heavens, in Brahmas heaven. So there you have that idea of non-returner, right? Uh, they seem to be talking about a physical place, like being reborn in a not here anymore. Um, is it the
1: city manga? is that part of the Abhidharma?
0: What it is, is the summary of the Abhidharma. This guy, Buddha Gosha, in like the 500s. He like Yeah, about the 500s, so almost a thousand years after the Buddha, in Sri Lanka. I believe he was a Sri Lankan monk. And so he took the whole Abhidharma and made a book. And the and Visuddhi Magga, the maga or Marga is the path, and Visuddhi means to purify. It's the path of purification. And I often say this about the Vasudhi Magha, that when I first encountered the Vasudhi Magha, I was kind of blown away because it was like a, like a Dr. Spock's guide for being a human.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I It was one of those moments where I was just like, whoa. Like, it was a little scary to me because it was just like, oh, there it is. There it is. There's there's the path. I could do it. No, I couldn't. I can't. Like I'm not capable in this life yet. But looking at this book and it's just like A to Z, the guide. No, you know, just there you go. It was a little humbling to be like not humbling, but it was a little like (laughs) because it's right in front of me, and I'm just admitting that I don't have I don't have what it takes to do it yet. But it, it's just like right there. Yeah. So
1: does it really is it like Reader's Digest of the Abhidharma, or does it pick and choose? And and then so my follow up question is like the, the detail that's in the sutta manga about the mental practice, exactly how you do it, and these mm-hmm. practices is that is that in the Abhidharma yes. as well? Oh no,
0: no. The Abhidharma is much yeah. more convoluted and full of yeah. Okay. It looks more like a, a you know physics book. You know when you okay. open up those. Physics or math, with math books, and you're just like, is there any words here? The Abhidharma is kind of like that. Whereas the Vasuddhi Magga is entirely accessible, like very accessible. It's one volume, not too long, not too dense, and it's this perfect summary. And it has been considered the perfect summary of the practice, not even just Abhidharma, but of the Marga, of the path, the practice. So if you're really serious about Dharma study. I would probably advise getting a copy and starting to acquaint yourself with it, because again, it's the it's fundamental. I have yep. a
1: are there sutras about karuna and mudita and compassion like there is about metta? There's
0: not. I, or at least I went looking and I couldn't find any. All I could find are commentaries, mainly from the Vasudhi Magga about those ideas. But it's only in the Mahayana that you start to get karuna as the okay. like karuna is it. Uh, Avilokiteshvara is Karuna, Maha Karuna, great compassion and all that. So, yeah, but I thought it was interesting. But again, if you, re- if you read what the Buddha is saying, he's not into this practice so much. Yeah. So it's not surprising that he doesn't dwell a lot on it. Yeah. Now, Vicky, did you have it? Does not come to buy fire, poison, or weapons, is, does that make sense? Does it
3: doesn't mean, it means literally like your body's not. loss of distinction between self and others, that, like, you, like you're, you're not as absorbed and attached to your own body, and so, like, you're not as, I think your, your, your peacefulness, your equanimity would not be harmed by being damaged by fire or
0: poison or whatever. So, uh, you know me. I'm, I mean? I'm always Mr. Spectrum of Analysis here. So, at one end of the spectrum is what you just said. The idea that one would reach such a state of equilibrium that one could be on fire but not be particularly bothered by it, type of a not attachment to the body, so therefore not suffering in the same way that somebody who is so attached to the body might. That's over here. Just know that over here, end of the spectrum is literally inflammable. Or no, inflammable means that you will catch up. No, I believe inflammable means... Inflammable and inflammable is one of those words. Like, I uh, thought they were in the book. Both... It,
2: changed, yeah, it over time.
0: Nonetheless, there are stories about being unable to catch on fire, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally unpoisonable and literally unbreakable in that sense. So there's like literal, more like, you know, it doesn't bother me as much, right? may I suggest a little middle path in there is sort of like if you take this idea of um, that you would be dear to people, the idea would being that somebody running up to hurt you would be like, I don't want to hurt you. So it's like no
3: one harms you with fire poison.
0: Type of a thing as a middle, as a middle to what? Yeah. But be open to the possibility that you could reach such a state as to not actually catch on fire. Uh, Just, you know, again, um, uh, uh, on that note, this idea of not, so this says not taken with views, no trafficking in views, Um, uh, not holding to fixed views, that's my preferred one. So the very last thing where it says about not being reborn, it says not by not holding to fixed views. And then being freed from all sensual desire. That's another huge. So sensual desire, wanting desire, that's a big one, obviously. But then there's this one of having fixed views. I cannot stress this enough about the dharma and about the practice, which is this idea of having it all figured out or knowing everything. The idea of like not having a fixed view is, is recognizing that you are probably wrong. And therefore, it's wiser for you, it's cooler, it's a better look for you to have a a softer hold on your view. Consider it your most, you know, your latest view. You know, the one I'm having right now type of a thing. But the idea of really holding on to any view, any view, any view, really hard in Buddhism is like, you don't want to do it. You know, It's really like a big problem. So again, the idea is a, a loose hold on these things. It's, again, a wiser, better look just to have a loose hold on these things.
3: I, I googled uh, Jainism, and uh, one of the words that popped out for me was that there are three premises. Uh, one is nonviolence, the other is many-sidedness, the other is asceticism. Many-sidedness is a new frame for me. mm
0: mm-hmm. Um, yeah there's it came up in this one it came up in last week's sutra um, this one was about being malleable or something but there's this language of, of it's along this idea of not having a fixed view and it's this idea of entertaining multiple views and it's it, an ahimsa nonviolence, and actually all three of them are, are principles that both Buddhists and Jains are all about they have a slightly different language for these ideas but
3: it also mentioned transtheistic meaning uh, is, uh it's a uniquely trans trans-theistic, it's a theistic trans theistic is theistic or
0: atheistic yeah i mean well those 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 are very tricky terms very tricky terms in terms of you know these terms theism and atheism you know they're you know they're grounded in a the in in a theos in in a very particular idea of divinity, which is this Greek, theos, what that means. And then you get into this idea of being a-theos, like being atheistic or not theistic. And it's like, what do you do? Because I hear often this idea of Buddhism being atheistic. And it's like, well, sort of, kind of. Most people are like, oh, Buddhism's atheistic, and then they get a sutra and they hear about yakshas, they hear about devas, they hear about gandharavas, they hear about all this stuff, and they're like, I thought that, you know, no, 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 the Buddhists just don't believe in a supreme being. They, they actually believe the highest, supremest being is you. Like, like, that's it. That a human being, a human being is higher than, potentially higher than any god, and and you, meaning you, that's hearing this right now, that's thinking about Dharma, you're like cutting-edge human for even being entertained by these ideas. And so there's Buddhism is interesting because, it's yeah, there's, there's spirits, there's all kinds of levels to reality, all the way up to Brahma. Buddhism's, what I love about Buddhism is they say that all the way from the hell-dwellers and the hungry ghosts to the animals to the devas to the asuras, they all suffer from wanting. All sentient beings, all beings suffer from wanting. Brahma, Vishnu, whoever. And so the human who's like, really? So you mean I could even like rise above a god by not having sensual desire or you know, sensual desire, by releasing my attachments. Rise above a god because even the gods want their heavenly abodes and their power and their whatever. Interesting idea. But again, is is Buddhism theistic or atheistic? Well, again, they don't believe in a supreme theos, so they're kind of atheistic in that way, but don't think they don't believe in spirits and gods and all kinds of stuff, because they do. And again, if you don't, are you rigidly fixed to that view? Are you really certain, really certain there's no, no such things as disembodied consciousnesses and ghosts and spirits and things like that? I don't know. that'll do for tonight oh my pleasure thank you thank you all for being here uh, I don't know where this mix